We turn on the television and watch the news and we see reports of crime and war and catastrophe and it can make us very afraid. Sometimes it causes us to wonder where this world is headed and fear that it's spinning out of control. Who would have guessed that looking back at the ancient book of 2 Samuel could actually fill us with hope and confidence as we look forward into the future? But it does. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel, where we get to listen in on the promise God made to David that makes all the difference to you and me as we face an uncertain future. I thought about buying up a bunch of those forever stamps a while ago before the postal rates were set to increase, and I should have done it. The beauty of forever stamps is that you buy them at the current rate for mailing a first-class letter, and they're supposed to be good for mailing a first-class letter forever, no matter how much the price of a first-class stamp increases. But the truth is, I hardly ever mail first-class letters anymore. Most of my communication with people is via email or telephone or cell phone, and I pay most of my bills online, and evidently I'm not alone. Reports are that the U.S. Postal Service is on the brink of bankruptcy, and if that is the case, maybe their promise of forever is not really all that reliable. Speaking of forever, we've all heard the famous line, a diamond is forever. But is it true? Evidently, for the last 25 years, a team of scientists have been trying to find out. At a site in central Japan, scientists have been monitoring a huge underground water-filled tank, waiting patiently for signs that all matter eventually decays into subatomic dust. Evidently, theorists believe it will show that protons, the building blocks of every atom, do not last forever, but decay into other particles. And that would mean that nothing made from atoms, not even diamonds, lasts forever. The Bible, however, talks about some things that do last forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Forever the Lord will love his own. His righteousness endures forever. Forever God will do what is right. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Forever God will do what he has promised to do and will be who he has promised to be. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Forever, God's word will have the power to accomplish what it intends. Forever, it will prove true. The Apostle John wrote, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Evidently, God intends to share his foreverness with those who find their life under his loving rule now. Does this kind of forever sound good to you? Let's face it, most of us have had experiences that felt like forever that we don't particularly want to experience again. So before we buy into this forever that's being offered to us, we want to know what we can expect. Over 3,000 years ago, God 
put a king on the throne in his city to rule over his people as his representative. The king who sat on this throne was never supposed to be a king like other kings in this world who rule independently and often tyrannically. Unlike any other kingdom and any other throne, this kingdom and this throne were established to last forever. But what does that mean? And why does it matter? Well, here in 2 Samuel, as we look at the king God put on the earthly throne over his people, the throne that was to be an earthly extension of his heavenly throne, we get a glimpse of the forever God intends to give to us. David was the king who was according to his own heart, the kind of king God wanted to rule over his people. And as we listen in on the promises God made to his king, we'll discover that these promises shape the forever God is inviting us into. David was a teenager when the prophet Samuel anointed him to be king over Israel. 25 years later, he was still not ruling on the throne. Instead, he had spent those years leading armies into battle and ducking from Saul's spears and living out in the wilderness and even in foreign countries. Second Samuel picks up the history of Israel immediately after Saul's death. And in chapter 2, we read that David was finally made king of Judah in the south, while Isbosheth, the son of Saul, was made king of Israel in the north, which is a hint of the division of the kingdom that will come later. 2 Samuel 3, 1 tells us, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. All the people who had followed Isbosheth had to decide if they would accept the king that God had chosen and anointed and submit to his rule for their lives, which is really the same decision we have to make. And when we come to 2 Samuel 5, beginning of verse 1, we read, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. So now David was king over all 12 tribes. But to effectively rule over all the tribes of Israel, David needed a capital city that would be centrally located amongst the tribes, a city that could become a fortress, that could withstand attack. And there was such a city. In fact, it had a royal history. A thousand years before the time of David, there was a city called Salem in which a good king named Melchizedek ruled, who was also a priest of Yahweh. Eventually, Salem was taken over by the Jebusites, who built a wall around the city and called it Jabus. In David's day, it was a fortress city 
set on a hill on the border between Judah and Benjamin, just the right location for ruling over all Israel. But there was a problem. Although it had been 300 years since the Israelites crossed over the Jordan and began possessing the land God promised to give to them, they still had not taken permanent possession of this great city. But this is now God's king leading God's people, and Jerusalem is about to become God's place, a city that already has been and is going to become even more central to the purposes of God, not only for Israel, but for the world, and not just in David's day, but forever. Look with me in 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 and 7. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. The stronghold on Mount Zion, one of several mountains in Jerusalem, became the center of David's kingdom. David established his palace and his center of government there. God established his great king in his great city. Look at 2 Samuel 5, verse 10. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David was the king, but he clearly didn't rule like other kings of his day. Rather than ruling as a proud head of state exercising absolute control, David ruled humbly as vice-regent to Israel's true king, God himself. He used his throne as a pulpit from which to preach God's rule and reign. The Lord reigns, David wrote in Psalm 93. He is robed with majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. So David was established in Jerusalem. But there was something very important that was not in Jerusalem. It was hidden far away. Decades before, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken into battle, but had been left in the possession of the Philistines. And it had been passed around from city to city because every place the Philistines took it, it was struck with plagues. So finally they took it across the border and left it in someone's home in Israel. And there it sat for decades. This meant that for decades, there was no Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle for the priests to approach once a year and sprinkle with blood for the forgiveness of the people's sins. And evidently nobody seemed to care. But David cared. And their desire for a king the people of Israel 
had wanted someone to lead them into battle, and David had proved many times over the years as a commander under Saul that he was a great warrior. But David was not only lead warrior for Israel, he was also lead worshiper. This meant that he could not stand for the symbol of God's active presence with his people to remain far away from Jerusalem, the heart and headquarters of the people of God. David wanted to put God at the center of the city. He wanted God to be at the center of their lives. The ark represented the throne of God, or more precisely, his footstool. So when David brought the ark to Jerusalem, it was his way of joining his throne to the throne of God, or more specifically, submitting his throne to the throne of God. The ark of God in the city served as a sign that David, as the king of Israel, was under the authority of the great king. That the Lord was the true king of Israel, not David. Evidently, nothing could have made David happier than for his reign to derive its splendor from the presence of the ark of God. So David had a city and a beautiful house in that city and was enjoying the presence of God with him in that city. The Philistines had been defeated and peace had broken out throughout the kingdom. After all of those years of sleeping in caves and hiding from Saul and all of the years sleeping in tents on various battlefields, it must have felt good to wake up every morning in his own bed in his cedar-paneled bedroom. But one day, as David sat on the roof of his luxurious palace overlooking the city, he saw something terribly amiss. He caught a glimpse of the 400-year-old tent that housed the Ark of God, the tabernacle. And the stark contrast between his royal dwelling and the rumpled dwelling place of the Ark of God was simply embarrassing. And David became determined to make things right. He wanted to do something for the God who had done so much for him. We read about it in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 3. Now, when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. There's no indication that Nathan consulted or inquired of the Lord in this matter as prophets were always to do before speaking with the authority of God. Evidently, Nathan's first response wasn't informed by revelation from God, but was a common sense reaction to a good idea presented by someone whom he knew wanted to honor God. Look back in 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 through 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, 
Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? This was the God who comes down to dwell with his people speaking. And as long as his people were wandering, which they had done for many years in the wilderness and throughout the years of taking possession of the land in Israel, he intended to wander with them. As long as they didn't have fixed security, he was not interested in having a fixed place to dwell. Moses had told the people that when God gave them rest from all their enemies so that they lived in safety, then in the place God chose, God would make his name dwell there. And while there was so much peace at this point under David's rule, there were still enemies to be defeated. Only when his people were settled and secure would God be ready to move out of the traveling tent and into a permanent home. David was about to learn that sometimes the purposes of God cut right across the desires of our hearts. We have desires for things and they're good things, even righteous things, and we're so sure that the Lord must have placed those desires in us. But we have to be careful that we're not confusing our desires with God's direction or intention. Sometimes God says no, not because he wants to deprive us or disappoint us or because what we want is sinful or bad, but because he is working out his plans for the world and for us that we can't see from our perspective. When God's purposes cut across our desires, we can be sure that his purposes are better than ours. His plans for our lives are better than our plans. And clearly, God had a plan for David that exponentially surpassed any plan David could have ever conceived of. Look with me in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 and 9. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. God honored the intention of David's heart with an intention of his own heart, saying in essence to David, you don't provide for me. I provide for you. You see, God doesn't operate on a quid pro quo basis, but only on the basis of grace. If we think that God is drumming his fingers, wishing we would come up with something big, something creative to do for him, something impressive or costly, we've not yet understood grace. God was saying, David, this life with me is not about doing for me. It's about receiving from me. God reminded David who is taking care of whom. God is going to make David's name great. And he's going to do more than that. Look back in 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. When David told God that he wanted to build him a house, he was talking about a temple to house the ark where the priests would offer sacrifices and mediate between God and his people. But God told David he wanted to make him a house. God wasn't talking about a family dwelling or a temple, but a royal dynasty. You know, the British royal family, for example, is called the House of Windsor. God was promising David that his descendants would become an enduring dynasty of kings. His descendants would take his place on his throne over Israel. But this wouldn't be like any other dynasty the world has ever known. Look in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. If we were identifying on a timeline of history, the handful of high points, we would put our pencil point on creation and then go to the promise that God made after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden of an offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And then we would skip to the promise made to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. And then to the time when God brought Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And then our line would arc toward this day to these promises made to David. And we would be tracing not only the significant history of the world, we would be discovering what we need most to know about the future of the world. Tracing these significant events marked by promises of blessing would help us to connect the dots that the blessing God promised to pour out on the world through Abraham is going to come in the form of a kingdom a descendant of David is going to be the king of this kingdom. The royal son of David is going to bless the world by ruling over it for all eternity. That is the future of the world that has been fixed by the one who created and governs this world. To understand all that God promised here to David, we have to understand that this prophecy did what a lot of prophetic messages in the Old Testament do. It takes an extended series of events and collapses it down so that the near and distant events can appear from this vantage point to be only one event. Oftentimes, there are some aspects of promises and prophecies that will be fulfilled in the near future and other aspects that will be fulfilled in the long-term future. God promised that he would make David's name great and give him a place of security for his people. And he did that in David's day. God promised that he would establish a dynasty from David and that his son would sit on his throne and would build a house for him. And God did that in Solomon's day 
when Solomon sat on David's throne and built a temple in Jerusalem. God promised that when David's son sinned, he would discipline him, which he did with Solomon and the other Davidic kings who followed him. But while the Davidic dynasty lasted longer than any other ancient dynasty, 400 years, there did come a day when there was no son of David sitting on the throne over God's people in Israel. In fact, there was no throne in Jerusalem and hardly a people, just a small remnant of people worshiping in a tattered temple under the rule of a foreign king. And the people must have wondered, and we might wonder, what happened to God's promise to David that his house his kingdom, and his throne would last forever. Was the promise of forever a mirage? A failure? In Psalm 89, a psalm written long after the days of David, when it seemed as if God's commitment to the reign of his anointed king was in jeopardy, the psalmist asked the wrenching question that was likely on everyone's mind and in everyone's heart. And it was, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? The psalmist is not just lamenting that there is no king and no throne. He is questioning whether or not God is proving faithful to his promise to David. But while the psalmist wondered aloud about God's fulfillment of his promise, they also celebrated their certainty that their true king, God himself, was on his throne. And the prophets continually encouraged the people that God was going to do something in the future to fulfill his promise to David. Isaiah wrote, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Isaiah was saying that though the seed of David might have gone underground, it had not been cut off for good. Amos spoke for God, saying, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Jeremiah prophesied, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The prophet Ezekiel wrote of a day when the exiled people of Israel would be gathered to their own land. He wrote, They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. And Zechariah seemed to see into the future by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Yes, the Old Testament prophets continually called the people of God to hold on to their confidence in the promises God made to David. But then the prophets stopped prophesying. There was only silence. 
hundreds of years of silence. But just as the death of David and all of his descendants who sat on his throne could not kill the promise, and just as the sin of David and Solomon and all of the other kings could not annul the promise, so time could not exhaust God's promise. The day came when God sent his angel Gabriel to a young girl living in Israel in a time when a cruel puppet king sat on the throne over Israel. And the angel told Mary that she was going to have a son. But this wasn't going to be just any baby. This was going to be the son, the king that generations had been longing for and waiting for ever since God made his covenant with David. The angel said to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no When Jesus was born in a stable in Bethlehem, the promise God made to David was fulfilled. Finally, God's son had come to take David's throne. When Jesus began his ministry and people saw his miracles, they were so astonished. They said, could this be the son of David? And as his ministry continued, more and more people hoped that he really would be the great warrior king, like his ancestor David, who would defeat all of their enemies. They were so hopeful that crowds lined the street when Jesus entered into David's great city, Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, just like Zechariah had prophesied. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying aloud, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But Jerusalem did not ultimately receive her king. It became clear that he had no intentions to establish a political kingdom. And so instead of receiving him, they rejected him. They conspired against him and handed him over to their foreign ruler to be crucified like a criminal. Rather than bowing to their king, they mocked him and spit on him. Instead of putting a crown of honor on his head, they pressed a crown of thorns into his head. John tells us, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! and struck him with their hands. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. All of those years of longing and waiting. And when the son of David came, they didn't want him. Like the people of Saul's day, 
who wanted a warrior king who would lead them into battle. The people of Jesus' day wanted a warrior king who would free them from the rule of Rome. But Jesus came the first time, not as a warrior king, but as a shepherd king, a good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep that he might take it up again. Just as God had lifted David from tending sheep in Bethlehem to sit on the throne, so God raised Jesus from the grave to sit on the throne. And that's where he sits now, which is what God had always intended when he put David on the throne. And evidently, David knew this. The Holy Spirit revealed to David that the very purpose of his ascension to the throne was to establish it for the Christ who would come to reign on it forever. That's what Peter said in his first sermon at Pentecost. In Acts 2, we read, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter made it clear that the son of David had not only come to David's city, but by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of God is now seated on David's throne. And because Jesus lives forever, his throne will last forever. It wasn't long after Peter preached at Pentecost that the emperor Domitian sat on the Roman throne and was demanding to be addressed as Lord and God. And those like Peter who called Jesus Lord and God were being severely persecuted and put to death. The Roman throne was a source of fear and anxiety as well as unparalleled suffering. But the Apostle John was one of many who just couldn't keep from talking about his true king, Jesus. And so he was arrested and imprisoned on Patmos. And while he was there, he was invited to see who is truly on the throne of this world, a vision he recorded in Revelation. Look with me in Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. As John peered into the heart of ultimate reality beyond the time and space of this world we live in now, what did he see? Amidst everything else that John saw, what stood out the most at the center of everything was a throne. And not just a throne, but an occupied throne, occupied by one who calls himself the root and descendant of David. There on the throne is the one who both preceded David in his deity and descended from David in his humanity. John wrote about what he saw, pulling back the curtain for us so that we can see what is most important, what really matters. 
My friends, the centerpiece of heaven is not mansions with many rooms or streets of gold, though the city will be magnificent. The wonder of heaven is not choruses of angels, though they will sound glorious. And I say this gently to those of you who, like me, look forward longingly to seeing those you love one day in heaven. The most compelling part of heaven will not be seeing those who have gone before us. The centerpiece of heaven, the focal point of this universe, the reality that all of history has been driving toward is the son of David on the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning providing a safe place for his people to rest, giving to them all of the benefits of his kingdom, refusing to let anything ever harm them again. And since Jesus is on the throne, you can stop trying to rule the world. You can stop all of your worrying and stop all of your vain attempts to control everything about your life and your family. The one who is seated on the throne is not only able to supply your needs and provide your protection, he has at his disposal everything needed to fulfill all of his promises to you. Because he is on the throne, your joy doesn't have to be so tied to your circumstances. And your sense of security doesn't have to be so easily shaken. The Lord reigns. The latest report on the state of the world on cable news does not define the future. That's why we probably shouldn't begin our days with the morning news on the television or radio or internet. Instead, we should begin in the Word of God every day should begin and end by being reminded from the scriptures, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He reigns over my difficult circumstances. He reigns over my ongoing conflicts. He reigns over my carefully crafted plans and he can be trusted. He is a good king. The Lord who reigns is so good that he actually invites us to approach his throne with the confidence that when we do, we will not be shamed or condemned or turned away. Instead, we will find grace and mercy. We can pour out all of our concerns to him who sits on the throne saying, Jesus, you are king over all of this. Forgive me for feeling so free to question you, to blame you, even disregard you. Give me eyes to see you on your throne. Give me a heart willing to trust that you will do what is best. Give me the spiritual strength to bend to your righteous rule in my life. Help me to live out this day in peace, confident that you are on your throne. We can live this way today. Because we know that there is a day coming, a day 
when our own ears will hear what John's ears heard. On that day, we will enter into the new Jerusalem. The presence of God will be there, radiating the glory that will penetrate into the deepest part of us. And there in the center will be the throne occupied by the son of David. We'll hear loud voices saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And it will be the best news that we have ever heard. This world, your world, is not ruled by the forces of random chance. King Jesus is on his throne, and he will reign forever and ever. So crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity.